Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. With us for this episode, one of my favorite pianists, Angela Hewitt. Angela, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. Angela's in London. Angela is stuck at home like so many other musicians and actors and performers of all kind. And, you know, when the coronavirus thing came up, and we were talking about it, I think, on the previous episode, all the number of creative people who have absolutely lost all of their work and have nothing to do. How are you dealing with this? Oh, it's right. It's, it's, I mean, it's dramatic for many, many artists and, and, you know, even piano tuners. I mean, I was about to have my piano tuner over uh, just when the lockdown came in place and then I had to put him off, you know, uh, and, and people like that are really desperate. But um, actually I was, when my Bach Odyssey uh, was supposed to have finished uh, in June, and then I was doing my festival in Italy, we'll talk all about this in a minute, but I'm saying it now, in the middle of July, I was anyway going to take until November as a mini sabbatical because I haven't had a break in 10 years. And so uh, three years ago, I blocked off those months. Um, so I was finishing this season, but very much looking forward to some quiet time. So now that this has all turned the world upside down, this awful disaster, I find myself with my quiet time now. And so actually, I'm making the most of it. I'm being very positive about that. And I'm, I have so many things to do. And then we will probably be, hopefully, we will be rescheduling some concerts um, that have got canceled. Now we'll be rescheduling them in October, September, October, when I am free. So, uh, so my my mini sabbatical has just come earlier than expected. You're quite prescient. Would you like to pick some lottery numbers for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Just before we started, I was saying to Doug that you know I was looking at your schedule and that you had concerts listed through June and July yeah. and nothing after. And I figured, well, she just didn't put them on the website because usually musicians like you, you're booking two or three years ahead, aren't you? Yeah, we're. I have a lot already for you know twenty one. 22, even some dates in 23. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, I had announced that, but but if you're just looking at the calendar, you wouldn't realize. But yes, that's true. So um, so now it's going to be a bit reversed that I have my break now and will work in the fall. So I'm trying to think that when a musician like you has downtime, what do you do? I'm thinking about when Murray Pariah had that thumb injury, right? And he famously played on a harpsichord because it was easier. And then he developed all this wonderful Bach performance practice and, and this new style of playing. Are you planning on doing something similar with your downtime? No. Well, what I had been planning on doing with my downtime, uh, first of all, was not playing for a while because I've played enough. Yeah. Certainly, I really, my body really does need the break from it. Um, and then, uh, you know, just to be in my London flat, which now I find myself in, uh, I'm turning out cupboards. I was just working in the bathroom, clearing out stuff. I've turned out all my wardrobe. I've I've, I came home, when I came home from my last tour just two weeks ago from Canada in the States, I found that mice had been in here. Well, I, I knew that before I left, and I left a lot of poison, and oh, God, it was a terrible mess. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, cleaning up after the mice, and I'd be, yeah, I be, I actually enjoy doing housework. I like the physicality of it, and then getting it done. And I'm going through papers, and I, I, I'm listening to old cassettes, and going through and seeing which ones I want to keep and copy onto other format, and which other ones I can throw out, and you know, all things like that. Because us concert pianists, we spend so much time on the road. You know, for for decades, I've been on the road, and I this flat here in London for over 30 years and it's just a one bedroom flat so I have to keep the amount of stuff I have in it down and then I could spend exactly well I could spend easily a whole month doing just accounts because I do all my own accounts <laughs> really I could oh I have an accountant it saves me so much time well yes but you don't have receipts from all over the world no that's a good point wherever that you, if you handed to an accountant they wouldn't know what the hell they were so I could spend easily a, a month just preparing everything for my various accountants and uh, and I probably will and so all things like that but I and and I am I must say because the program that I was working on uh, that I hadn't yet played in my Bach Odyssey because I've performed now 11 of the 12 uh, is the Art of Fugue uh, which I haven't played in in over five years and which is a complete rework really so I'm when I'm at the piano that's what I'm doing at the moment I'm reworking the art of fugue which of course will keep you busy for many hours yes it would keep anyone busy for a long time I think so those who don't know Angela Hewitt you're very well known for your Bach you've have you recorded all of Bach's keyboard music or yes. solo keyboard music at least all this yes all the solo keyboard music and all the keyboard concertos yes Yes, and so you've recorded Beethoven. I'm just going through the list on the Hyperion Records website. There will be a link in the show notes. You've recorded Beethoven, Chabrier, Chopin, Couperin, Debussy, Faure, Messiaen, Mozart, Rameau, Ravel, a lot of French composers. Yes. Why in particular the French? My piano teacher was French from the age of 15. Uh, it's his ah. birthday, Jean-Paul Sevilla. He's 86 today. And, um, yeah, he was my teacher for many, many years from the age of 15 to, well, roughly 23. And he taught me all of this wonderful French repertoire, really in the authentic style. And he, he played so much of it himself. But, I, yes, that was really a wonderful to have that experience of learning it with him. But no Schubert. Now, maybe you should take this time off to, to, to perfect some Schubert. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, well, you know, when I was doing the whole box cycle, which took a little bit of time, yeah. all my colleagues were doing Schubert. I mean, you know, there was Brendel, of course, and there was Uchida, yeah. there was Schiff, yeah. and there was Lupu, and Pariah, and, and many others. So everybody was doing Schubert. But I've, I've played... Um, Several of the sonatas, the G major, the E flat, the, the one of the A minors. Uh, I've done a lot of the songs. I just did um, Interisa with Ian Bostridge in Montreal. Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah, it was. Wow. We were supposed to do that at my festival this summer, but that's been canceled. Yeah. But it's something we're keeping in our diaries. So, but okay. I, yes, I will in the future. But. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, other projects that I have written down here to do in this quarantine quarantine phase, or I want to choose a repertoire for a third Scarlatti disc, because I've done two, and I love Scarlatti. And also... I've, and after that, there's only 34 to go, <laughs> if you want to do the complete... <laughs> 500, 500 more. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's one thing I want to do. So, I, you know, I'm, I've never been one to be bored and i always can find a project to do so um 
that's I'm trying to stay positive in that way. There's a concert listed in April, which is obviously canceled with Ian McEwan, one of my favorite writers. What what was that supposed to be? It's in German, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, that was in Vienna at the concert house where we've performed before, and I've also performed there with Julian Barnes, uh, the author. Another one of my favorite writers. Yeah, fantastic author. You're in good company. I yeah. Am. Well, I, Ian introduced me to Julian. They're close friends, and Julian lives quite close to me here in London, so uh, he's also in quarantine at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, no, this was uh, the first program we did in Vienna with Ian was a program centered around the music in his, in his um, film, uh, well, also his book this children act um, because i play i play in the screen in the in the soundtrack to that film right okay the box you hear is me playing it, it looks as though it's emma thompson but it's actually yeah. me and uh so we did a program in vienna which they really loved so they wanted to have us back so we were uh, ian was preparing um, an hour-long performance talking about that trip that Bach made to visit uh, Buxtehude in Lübeck. The one where he famously walked yeah. for however many days it took, yeah. But, yeah, so, and I was going to play music to match. So, I think they're, um, they're rescheduling it in December. Uh, let's hope that that can happen then. You should do some of those concerts closer to here. I've seen you in concert a few times. I think the last one was, was it January 2018 in Birmingham where you played the French Suites? Um, but but you you have you haven't been around here too often. Actually, that wasn't eighteen. That was seventeen. Was it seventeen? Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, I used to. I played an awful. I don't. I've played an awful lot around the Birmingham area. Yes, but uh, in the last year, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, I think the last time I played there was with the Vienna Tonkünstler Orchestra in Symphony Hall. We did the Emperor Concerto. Uh, but but um, but it'll you know it'll come back. I mean, uh, at the moment nothing's going anywhere. Yes, we hope things will return to normal at some point. Yeah, it must be interesting for a performer like you who is thinking years ahead. What sort of perspective does that give you on this sort of forced pause? And again, you were going to take a sabbatical, but now that everything's changed. How, how is it thinking and planning so far ahead like that? It's very bizarre, I must say. It's very bizarre because, I mean, even the, the good people in Dortmund, Germany, where I was to have performed the Art of Fugue in a few days on April 1st, well, they've um, rescheduled for June the 17th or something like that coming up now. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. But, but um, we'll have to reschedule a second time. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's weird. And it's also weird, you know, we're planning for like Australia in October of 21. And you think to yourself, will the airlines even be? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. well, will this, the airline industry be then? I mean, it's just turned the world up on, yeah. on end. And so we make plans, uh, we make plans, but it's a very weird feeling, I must say, at the moment, uh, because I don't know if we'll be able to go back to life as it was, really. So when, when you're planning three years ahead, and let's say you're going to play The Art of Fugue, and you said you haven't played it in five years, yeah. how long before that do you have to start working on the repertoire again? How much lead time is there to prepare for, let's say, um, something you're going to do in three years? When do you start working on that? Well, it depends what it is. I mean, the Art of Fugue is, I, I, well, I had two big, besides it, I had another very big Bach program, which I played for the first time um, uh, in, in, in February, I guess I've lost track of where we are. 
uh, or was it in, no, yes, end of February. That's right. I played at the end of February. So that I started working on in January. But in January, I also had a huge, well, the recording I did before the unfortunate accident with the piano, which we'll talk about. But um, I was working on that. But I, um, yes, I had this huge rock program to do for the end of February. And then I had the Art of Fugue also. So I all through February, I was working on two rock programs, but I gave myself that month to do the first 10 of the Art of Fugue. They're basically 20. 20 units in it if you want uh so i i almost got there i did nine in february and then in in march when all of this started happening but i was working on the second half so now i i do find myself with at least another few months to learn it which is very nice actually because it would have been a bit of a bit of a scramble to put it all in but uh but then pieces that i know very well i mean that i learned as a teenager those are the ones that always stick so you know the gold you can wake me up, Goldberg Variations, I'll play for you any time of the night or day, you know, whether I practice it or not. Um, oh, please do. Please do. <laughs> and, uh, other things, you know, if it's a contemporary concerto, I mean, I was to have played with the Toronto, I am to play, but I, it's again, it's certainly not yeah. happened in May, a contemporary Canadian concerto, which I premiered in October 2017 with the Toronto Symphony, Matthew Whittle's concerto, Nameless Seas. And that I really would have had to start working on now for mid-May, but um, you know it's it's not going to happen. So yeah. so that gives you an idea of how long. But I yes, it's a, it's always something you have to very very carefully consider if you don't want to end up in a lot of trouble. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the piano. This is such a sad story. You you had this wonderful piano that was more or less custom made for you, and it just went. Kaput, as as you're quoted saying in the Guardian article. Yeah, yeah. It was I was doing a recording, which we've just sent in the master of the recording, and I just finished. That's another thing I did this week while self isolating, writing CD notes for it. Uh, a whole record of Beethoven variations, seven different sets, including the Eroica variations. Um, uh, we were recording that in Berlin, in, in the church where I record there, which is wonderful, where Carrie Ann used to record in Furtwängler. And we had finished, and so I gave the movers the okay to go ahead and move the thing. And then I was in the control room, which is quite a bit down the hallway, with my producer. We were finishing off some computer stuff on the file. And then after a while, they came in, and they said, terribly sorry, we've let your piano drop. And, uh, yeah, that was not a nice thing to hear, I can tell you. Anyway, uh, it just went over on the stone floor and while they were, when they were trying to put it up on the trolley. Trying. I mean, as you know, they're, they were a very, very, very experienced firm, but I don't know how it happened. I wasn't there. But that's what happened. So, yes, it's kaput. And so the insurance has agreed that they will... Um, pay the price of what a new one would cost so that's good but you won't be able to get the same piano made again for you is that correct oh well no well i mean every piano is unique so it won't be the same yeah but right mr fazioli will still once i have chosen i mean he has to work on work at producing another new three three to choose from because when you choose you always have a choice of three and uh, as I did 17 years ago when I chose that one. And um, uh, and then once I've chosen, I mean, it might be that I don't like any of the three, in which case I'll wait for the next three, but I doubt it. 
Yeah. He's ma- still makes very stunning pianos, but once I've chosen, then he will put on the fourth pedal, which uh, normally he only puts on his 308 model, the model that's what I call his monster model. It's bigger than the normal concert grand. Yeah. Um, but for me, he had it on the 278, and mine was the only one in the world with the fourth pedal, but he will do it again, although he says it's a pain in the neck to have to put it on. Well, he didn't use the word neck in the Guardian article, but <laughs> was, um, it, it says that he will never fit four pedals ever again because it was such a pain. So. We'll do it for me. He will do it for Good. me. He's agreed to do it, and the insurance will pay for it because it costs extra. But uh, but that will have to. That obviously can only be done after I choose which piano. And I choose right. the piano, and of course, at the moment, nobody's going to Italy anyway, and the factory's just being closed down. The production. Sure. So yeah. I don't think you know it'll be much later in the year when I'm able to choose another one. Fortunately, at the moment, I don't have any. Uh, recordings planned, but uh, before the end of the year, I might, in which case I'll have to use one maybe from the dealer here in London or who knows, we don't know. But, um, but, you know, he is still making, as I say, wonderful pianos, and I'm sure he'll make sure that he finds three terrific ones to present to me. And you've described it as your best friend, and that must be really painful to have an instrument that you... Uh, from I remember reading a book about Glenn Gould's piano and, and the the sort of personal connection that a pianist has with a piano like that. It must be, I I can't imagine how it feels to not be able to sit down and have that same sound again. Yeah, yeah, especially when I listen to this new recording, you know, it sounds so fantastic. Uh, they're just resonances in that piano and the bass and the clarity and the way it sings. It's, it's, It's really fantastic. So, yeah, well, you know, I the thing is, and I the thing is that I I was the only one ever to have played on that piano. I mean, other some other pianists who had come to my festival, um, like Gabriela Montero and Yanina Filkowska and John Kimmore Parker had played on it in in various concerts when we were doing duo stuff, and Gabriela did some improvisations on it. But but otherwise, I was the only pianist ever to play on that piano. Um, uh, in a, in the 17 years of its life. And you know, a piano takes on the characteristics of a person playing it. And also my German piano technician in Hanover, Gerd Finkenstein, was the only technician to work seriously on the piano, meaning, you know, doing major technical work. Others others tuned it, but Gerd was the only one to do the, the technical work, which he did at the time with the sessions. And so it, that's why it really developed a personality that matched the way I played, because that's what pianos do, you know, if, bash on a piano it's never going to sound good so uh, when I get a new one um, I'll have to play on it a lot to develop that same sort of bond with it and for it to match what I'm doing but it will I'm, I'm sure I will it'll just be a different experience I guess that's all it's like you know yeah anyway we'll have to I'm positive I'm positive about it yeah so I've never played the piano I did play a digital piano for a while what is the fourth pedal on this piano. What's so special about it? Sure. Well, the fourth pedal mechanism, what it does is it does two things when you put it down. First of all, you see the keyboard, the keys actually go down. They depress, they depress the keyboard. So the key, the, so the key strike, I mean, the, the, it, it becomes lighter to play because you don't have to push as much. And then at the same time, the hammers um, come up towards the strings halfway so that when they strike the the um, when they strike the strings, the strike is only half the distance. You see, 
Um, so that makes you lose depth. So you don't want to use it when you're playing anything that needs a lot of depth. But it makes it very light and very fluent. And um, and well, the best thing about it is that it's not like the unicord of the soft pedal because the soft pedal shifts over the action so that you're only hitting one string instead of three. But this it's hitting all three strings, so the sound itself doesn't change. So people don't know you're using it. So when you're playing runs like oh, at the end of the Beethoven Sonata, Opus Ten, Number Three, you have the up and down the keyboard, you know, written pianissimo, very very softly. That that for that kind of thing, it's wonderful. Actually, I used it mostly in, in Beethoven, funnily enough, because it, some passages that were more suitable to the forte piano than the modern piano, I found it very good for, where you needed a shallower action uh, and one that could be very light, but still clear. That's fascinating, because as a listener who's not a musician, we don't realize it. We just get the net result of that, which we might hear it's a different sound, but not understand where it comes from. Well, I, I know what the pedals do, and... And the four, when you said the fourth one, I said, oh, what does it do? Just dampen a few strings. But that's really interesting. Are there, are there any other keyboards made contemporarily that, that made currently that, that use a, a pedal like that? Or yours is quite unique. Uh, well, Fazioli is quite unique you know, in that. I, I mean, I think he patented it. Um, I, I think Stuart Pianos in Australia, I have tried one there. Uh, in a dressing room that that had a in Sydney that had a fourth pedal, which I, if I remember correctly, I think did the same thing. Um, but otherwise, I think it was Mr. Fazioli who came, who you know, invented this. And, mm. uh, and of course, a lot of piano teachers or pianists as well. You know, it's not written in the score. When to use it? Right. <laughs> not you have to just use your imagination but the problem is of course that when you have it it's wonderful but then you most of the time you have to go and play on other pianos that don't have it (laughs) so then whatever passage you're playing just becomes immediately harder but uh but it was great to have it in the recordings yeah so both doug and i our day jobs are in technology i find it really fascinating that you're using an ipad to look to have scores on your piano. When did you start doing that, and how does it work? I well, I still play a lot from memory, but I, I started doing that in 2012 when I performed the Art of Fugue for the first time, uh, because you know the Art of Fugue is incredibly complicated, and I wasn't 25 years old anymore, uh, so memory gets harder. But but also I I didn't want there was no way I wanted to get up in public and playing the sublime Art of Fugue with somebody sitting beside me turning the pages. So yeah, I knew that it existed. And I went to Sam Haywood, who was one of the first pianists to to use it ever. He plays a lot with Joshua Bell, and uh, and he sh- I got I went out and bought an iPad at the Apple Store, which was very near he lived, and I took it to him, and he showed me how to download four score and 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 get the pedal and all of this stuff. So um, I started using it, and I just thought it was absolutely brilliant, you know, because to turn to be able to turn the page at, at the exact second that you want it to go but i what i do is that i i still use my own score i can't live without having the real score right and i i put all my markings in my score so i have them also for posterity and then when i'm ready to perform something um you know maybe a week or two weeks before or whenever um i will scan every page and get well, and even if it's, you know, 120 pages of, of Tarangalila by Messiaen or the Wells Ember Clavier, I'll scan every page, get it in one 
or several PDFs and then get it into Dropbox and then it comes up on my iPad and, and converts to four score. And so I have like a, just a copy of my own score. And uh, so it's terrific. It does mean that you can go around the world also with less uh, weight in your in your handbag. Sure, um, right. Yeah, although I tend, if it's something important like the art of you, I'll always have the real score with me. Always, you know, I won't just trust it to the iPad. Just also because in the, you know, in the five ten minutes before a performance, if the stage manager puts out my iPad, I still like to have the score in the dressing room to look at. You know, warm up a bit. But uh, but it's a wonderful invention. I mean, I always dreamed when I was young to be able, you know, saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if somebody someday invented something contraption where you could turn the pages with your foot you know <laughs> but that means you've got done. another pedal that means I have <laughs> and you've got five right? pedals <laughs> six, six actually because on the that's really there four and then on the on the foot pedal there are two forward and back that yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> well, has it ever failed an organism, you know? because we're, we're constantly dealing with technology that fails have you ever had a problem during a performance that the ipad failed on you no i've never i always make sure well the ipad the one i have the ipad pro i only put scores on it i don't use it for anything else while i watch bbc news on it on the, you know on, on. yeah but i, not I while don't, you're playing though not while you're not in I, performance you don't. <laughs> but i i don't have i don't do email on it or anything i just i just have it for scores and i always make sure it's 100 percent charged before i go out on stage and i always make sure the pedal is 100 percent charged so up to now it's been you know i if i'm going off for a long tour i do i'll carry a second pedal in my suitcase just to, you know in case something happens with that they're almost, they're fascinated by it at airports, you know, because you're not you shouldn't really put it in your hand luggage because it's got a battery inside. And so yeah. I, I put it in my handbag. And it, when I first started carrying it around, you know, they thought it was a bomb or something. I didn't know what it was. And now they're getting to learn. But I still I still do take it out and put it in the in the separate bin, you know, along with my laptop. And they're always looking at this thing saying, what is this? What is this? <laughs> And then you have to explain the whole story about what did you doing, yeah. Do, does it, so the pedal works with Bluetooth then? It's Bluetooth, yes. Okay, because, yeah. yeah, if you'd have to run wires. It's funny because I, I showed Doug a photo yesterday, I think from your Twitter feed, showing your iPad, you had a new stand for it. And Doug said, oh, she has a prepared piano there to play some John Cage. Well, <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, I had a little stand made in Italy, handmade. Uh, but although usually I just, if it's something I know really well, I just put it flat inside the piano. So most of the audience doesn't even know you're using it, actually. So it's more of a reminder, yeah. Because yeah. you, you know the works well enough. I'm always surprised when I see how many musicians do play with scores. And it, I guess it's just something to latch on to, right? Well, pianists have always, I mean, it's the fault of Clara Schumann and, and Liszt, who were the first pianists to play from memory. Before that, nobody played from memory. It was considered rather pretentious to play from memory. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, but Clara Schumann... She needed to set herself apart from all these guys, these male virtuosos, and and so she started playing from memory and to impress people, and it all went from there. And so pianists have always been expected to do this, whereas other instrumentalists, nobody cares if if an instrumentalist puts up a score for a violin sonata, for instance. You know, nobody thinks twice about it. So, and, so. And I think it's a very good thing to memorize. I mean, especially when you're young, because you memorize so easily. Uh, you should know a piece from memory, because otherwise you haven't really internalized it enough. 
um, then if you want to use a music, okay. But I mean, you really need to do that work to say that you know a piece. Uh, and also, we just need to use our memories. You know, it's a muscle that needs to keep uh, constantly keep in shape. So, so I still do an awful lot of memorization, even though with age it gets much harder. You drive yourself crazy, but you, you do it much more consciously when you're older. So you really have to think about it. You can't just trust on reflex memory. But um, but yeah, for chamber music, you know, and and for very complicated scores, and it's great to have the archive. I remember this film. Is it called? late quartet and the cellist Christopher Walken he's resigning and one of the violinists wants them to start playing without scores and that's like a big bone of contention for the others who want to keep with the scores right. is it like that among some musicians that there is a sort of radical fundamentalist desire to play without scores well, at my festival this summer in Italy, I was to have a concert with the Sacconi Quartet from here in England who were going to play Beethoven Opus 131 from memory in the dark. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry that's not going to happen now, but they were making yeah. a thing of it this cool. year. Because I think that would have been a wonderful experience. Also, because that concert is in the uh, in the courtyard, the 15th century courtyard of the Castle of the Knights of Malta in Magione in Umbria, which is just the most gorgeous city. And other quartets who've played in the past, almost all of them, have uh, have the normal sheet music. And then we have to put clothes pegs on the music stands. And in between movements, it's always adjusting the clothes pegs. It drives me crazy. I never want to see clothes pegs again. So I was so happy when I saw that a quartet was going to play Beethoven from memory. I thought, great, <laughs> no clothes pegs. <laughs> so, but they could all just use iPads. Yeah, but well, then yeah. you'd have the blue screens. So then all you'd be have the blue screen, blue. yeah. Some of them. Do well, actually, know. yeah, that could be attractive if you've got the lighting on their face. If they're playing in the dark, that would actually be nice. Yeah, some of them do now, but I mean, I know one quartet where three of them do, and and one of them doesn't because he just can't cope with this. <laughs> so, that's a bit funny, you know. That must them. be conflict in that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I really sort of, I've, I've said many times now in jest, but really I mean it, is that I'm simply not booking any string quartets anymore that don't play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just too too awful when they're playing outdoors and just the tiniest little bit of wind and the, and the score goes. And... Yeah. Okay, Angela, I want to thank you very much for taking this time. I really would have another hour's worth of questions. Um, I, I've always wanted to know what the touring life is like. Doug was saying before, you know, has she trashed any hotel rooms like Keith Moon or something? Um, <laughs> but but maybe we can discuss that some other time. Another, another time, yeah. But okay. it's actually it's, – it's, it's a change of life for me to have a break from that, of course. But uh, even though we're going through this most tragic time in the world, it's, it's – uh, it's a bit of a relief just to stay put. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much and stay well. And I'll put a whole bunch of links in the show notes. You've been putting some little videos on Twitter yeah. of some short Bach pieces. Sure. And a, a lot of musicians are doing this live streaming things or, or taking videos. And, and I think this is really good to keep the music alive and for people to be aware of what we're missing now. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And maybe then when we come back, there'll be even more people in concert halls. I hope so. Okay, Angela, thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks, Kirk and Doug. Thank you. Bye. As we do at the end of every show, we'd like to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we have in mind that we'd like to be listening to. Kirk, what have you got? 
if you listen to the podcast regularly, you know I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. And as much as I would like to pick something about Bach or by Angela Hewitt, I can't not talk about this new Bob Dylan song called Murder Most Foul. It's a 17-minute, slow, haunting, dirge-like ballad. There's not much rhythm. It just flows along without much memory. And the song is about the murder of John Kennedy. And Dylan starts by using some clever rhyming and images and cultural references. And then he kind of just splits away from talking about the assassination itself to this long section near the end where he's saying, play, play this, play Oscar Peterson, play Stan Getz, play Buster Keaton, play Harold Lloyd, play Misty for Me in that old devil moon, play Anything Goes in Memphis in June. It's a fascinating song, and Dylan just released this last night saying that, well, this is something we recorded a while ago, and we hope you like it. Given the current situation, in some ways, it's reassuring to have a great new Dylan song, and this is going to become a classic, Murder Most Foul. It's a line from Hamlet in the first act. The ghost says that when he's talking about his own murder, so the murder of the king. There are other Shakespearean references in it. What can I say? A 17-minute Bob Dylan song coming at this point in time is really quite surprising, so check it out. Doug. I've been listening to a lot of comfort music, and for me, sometimes that's uh, going back to the music that I've heard a lot in my house growing up. And I know I've mentioned many times that we used to listen to a lot of Ella, Ella Fitzgerald. And the album I came across that I, I'm anxious to listen to is one called Ella and Oscar. It features Oscar Peterson on piano, accompanying her on a, on a lot of great standards. Uh, also, Ray Brown is uh, the bass player on the album. Ella means a lot to me. My mother and father listened to a lot of Ella Fitzgerald when I was growing up. And they also listened to a lot of Oscar Peterson. In fact, whenever I listen to Oscar Peterson, I think of my father because my father was a piano player and he was very influenced by the way Oscar Peterson played. He's kind of has a laid back feel, but he has these nice, nice way of phrasing chords and uh, just has a great sound. He's a, you know, obviously one of the greatest jazz musicians ever. This album, Ella and Oscar was recorded in 1975, and I'm laughing because when I first saw it, I said, oh, this is probably done in the 50s or so, but no, 1975, when, when both of these fabulous musicians were well-matured, and uh, it's, it's a really good-sounding record. From what I remember, I haven't listened to it recently, but I'm, I'm anxiously looking forward to it, and I think I'm going to delve back and try to find uh, some of the other um, song albums that Ella did. I know she did an album of Gershwin. And I'm going to look for a, a couple of other ones like that. But this one I'm very anxious to listen to again. Ella and Oscar. Ella Fitzgerald, Oscar Peterson is my next track. This was episode number 173 of the next track. Thank you very much for listening. The interview with Angela Hewitt was recorded on Thursday, March 26, 2020. Your comments on any episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website, You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell your friends about the next track on social media. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.